Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. We are going to the book of Ephesians. We're going to start a series from now until the end of August, studying a letter from a man named Paul written to a church he planted in a city called Ephesus in Asia Minor in the first century. Now, we are going to do some groundwork that will set up the rest of the series. So we're going to look at a bunch of kind of separate passages, but we're going to kind of paint a broad picture of how Paul writes his letters. Because there's a truth in here, and I'm going to try to oversell you. Oh, and if you need a blue Bible, uh, let one of our ushers know. We put the words on the screen, but that is less godly than looking at them uh, in the Bible itself. And so if you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have a Bible, normally give them back to us. Uh, so we can give them away. And if you don't have one, oh, we're right here. There's a hunger. This man is hungry for the word of the Lord. Andy, you got it. You're ignoring these people right here. And oh, look at him running. All right, anybody else? Let's go to the book of Ephesians and let's go. Oh, let's go to chapter four. Now, stick with me for five minutes because this part gets a little tricky. All right, Paul. All right, here's Andy. Let him know. Let them know right here. Andy, don't, don't, don't deal with those people yet. These people here in the gray chairs are far more loved because they either came late and didn't get the comfy chairs or they came early and sat in the gray chairs on purpose, in which case they're gluttons for punishment. Or they could have had kids that they checked in because you all bring your children. If we could just leave them at home, life would be better. Would you agree? I mean, at what, let me ask you parents, at what age can I leave them home by themselves? My kid's seven. Is that, am I good? Five more years? That is false. I rebuke that five-year stuff. All right. Paul, now stick with me. Paul, when he writes his letters, follows a formula uh, in almost all of them. And it, it's this formula. He will first tell us who we are in Christ. And then the second part of the letter is always, here's how you live because of who you already are. Theologians call this an indicative followed by an imperative. An indicative indicates what God has done. An imperative is a command to live up to what's already true of us. Paul always follows this pattern of writing in his letters. He will always start with, here's what Christ has done, and then he will follow with, here's what you must do in response. He will never reverse them. But notice, some false versions of Christianity and, and re the religious systems of the world reverse these. They say, here's what you must do in order to be this. Christ reverses it. Here's who you are. Now, here's what you must do. The invitation of Paul's writings is always to live up to what's already true of you. And so part of the work of Jesus, and we remember, we've been immersing ourselves in the life and person and ministry of Jesus for months now with the sole goal of, of holding him up as who he really is so that you would follow him. Not just believe in him with your head, not just religiously 
try to check off some boxes, but that you would actually see the wisdom, the beauty, the majesty of this Jesus, that you would trust him with your real life, and that you would follow him because his spirit now dwells in those of you who've given your lives to him. And so we talk about following Christ, not just believing in Christ. Because Christ never just said, hey, memorize a creed about me and you're good. He said, people are in desperate darkness and they need a way out. And he, we believe, is that way. We all follow somebody. So when people ask me, hey, why do you follow Jesus? I like to respond with, well, who else did you have in mind? I mean, I've tried following me and that did not work. So we believe that this Jesus is far more than just somebody who wants to deal with our sin problem. He actually teaches us how to live. And what Paul does in this letter is he fleshes out what it means to be, in his words, in Christ. That is his favorite definition for followers of Jesus. He calls them in Christ. And we want to talk about what that means. So from now to August, we're going to be spending lots of time. But this morning, I want you to get the picture that he writes his letters the following way. The indicative, here's what Jesus has done. And the imperative, here's what we must do. And that the invitation is to live up to what's already true of you. You have to understand, you don't appear dazzled in any way, shape, or form by this information. You do not seem excited yet. I, for the next half an hour, will do my best to let you know this is some of the best news and the most important stuff you could ever understand about following Christ. Now, what Paul does, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, the whole book, first three chapters, all Paul does is tell us who we are in Christ. Three chapters. Here's who you are, here's who you are, here's who you are. Now notice the whole book changes in chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have what? Received. Does that sound past tense to you? Does that sound like it's something you've already got? Would you agree? If you flip back, don't do it. If you flip back and look in the first three chapters, here are some of the ways Paul describes followers of Jesus. You are blessed. You are chosen. You are holy. You are blameless. You are predestined. You are adopted. You are sons. You are daughters. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. You are under Christ, in Christ. You are the praise of his glory. You are marked in Christ. You are sealed in Christ. You're made alive with Christ. You're raised up with Christ. You've been saved by Christ. You are God's handiwork. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. You're a new humanity. You have been brought in close because of peace. You are now members of God's household. You are fellow citizens with God's people. That is just like a smattering of what Paul says is true of you. And then, and only then, does he say in chapter 4, live up to what you already have. You have to understand, he never reverses it. He never says, live this way so that you can be this way. He says, you are this way already. Now live up to it. See, when you look at the way the, the, the world's religious systems orient themselves, it's all about doing this to get this. Paul says, no, no, you've got this, so do this. And that difference is all the difference in the world. Go to the book of Romans. I want to show you a couple of other places where he does this. Romans chapter 12, page 920 in the divinely blue, glorious Bibles. 
Romans 12, verse 1. Paul, if you've ever read the book of Romans, is it light reading? It is not. It is, it is his thickest articulation of the good news about Jesus. There are all sorts of very fancy, complicated religious words and 11 painstaking chapters he outlines in almost excruciating detail. Whether you're Jewish or not Jewish, by faith, you can be saved in Christ. Then, in chapter 12, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of his mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now think about what he said. In view of God's mercy, he just spent 11 chapters elucidating God's mercy. And then he says, in view of that, it's only reasonable that you would offer your whole selves to him. It's not offer yourself to him so that you get all of this. It's that he's done all of this. Therefore, it makes perfect sense that you'd give your life to him. Do you see the difference? You do not seem suitably impressed. Let us go to the book of Philippians. We will dazzle you with Bible knowledge, compel you with emotional appeals, answer our cellular devices. I'll, I'll be glad to pick it up for you. She can't come to the phone right now. She is learning about Jesus. <laughs> Philippians chapter 1, <laughs> verse 27. I want you to see Paul does this everywhere. Become who you already are. Verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, let's paint a couple of pictures of what this means. I hit puberty when I was 12. I know you're interested to know. I got married when I was 29. Now, by my reckoning, that is 17 long years in the wilderness. Would you agree? <laughs> and by the age of 29, I was completely saturated and established as a single man. I had my single ways of living and thinking. Dishes, I threw them away. They would sit in the sink until they grew mold, and then they would be tossed and I would buy new ones. That's how I did my dishes. Making a bed, what's the point? You're just going to sleep in it later. Toilet paper. I'd get the Costco 50-pack. I'd set it in front of the toilet, and as long as I could reach it, it didn't have to be on the roll. It just, who cares? It just as long as you could grab it. Laundry. I had three piles on the floor. Clean, semi-clean, and unclean. And it wasn't until the two first piles had moved all into the third pile that I would do laundry. All right? This was how I lived, and it was wonderful. I stand in Mariner's Church, uh, old auditorium, a, a pastor named Eric Hurd stands and looks at my sweetie and I, and he pronounces me a what? A husband. Do I have any idea what it means to be a husband? Not one. In fact, most of my life had prepared me for the exact opposite of being a husband. Namely, I was perfectly at home being a self-centered, narcissistic, masculine dude. Now, I am pronounced a husband. So what is the point now of my marriage? Well, there are many, but one of them is learning to be what I already am. Learning to live up 
to what's already true of me, right? I'm a husband. And now I get to figure out what that means. And so literally, the job is to put off my single ways of thinking and behaving and put on married ways of thinking and behaving. Do you understand that? I can't lose my marital status. My wife and I, the, committed, the commitment of our covenant means that I can imperfectly learn and progressively learn to embody what's already true. I became a husband in that moment. And yet now the rest of my married life is living up to what's already true. And so the invitation isn't, hey, do this stuff so you can be a husband. It's now do this stuff because you are a husband. So that's when Paul in Philippians says, live your life worthy according to the gospel. You've already got it. Live up to it. So in our house, dishes get done. I've awakened to this whole new reality of using the same dishes over and over and over. Beds get made even though they will be slept in later. Toilet paper is put on the little roll so that it comes over the top, ladies. It comes over the top. And there's been one time, I kid you not, I exaggerate all the time, but this is not exaggeration. One time, I put it on so that it came up from the bottom. And she yells at me. <laughs> Laundry is now done with regularity. Clothes are clean smelling. I mean, it's a whole new way of life. The point, though, is that all the work I did wasn't to gain the status of being a husband. It's because I already had it. Do you see how central this is? Let's talk about childbearing. <laughs> For three years, my wife and I lived this wonderful life together. I don't know why we decided to ruin it. <laughs> so, here come children. Nate shows up. We, the morning, I mean, we went to the hospital as a couple. And we come home as a family, right? After 22 hours, an emergency C-section, I look at my wife and say, man, that was exhausting. And she, she chose not to embody Christ-like virtue in her response. All of a sudden, we have a kid. Am I a father? Yes, do I know what it means to be a father? No, but it's already true of me. So now the invitation is to live up to what's already true. And because I can't lose fatherness, I'm free. Like when I, when I fail, and this will shock you, every now and again I screw up as a dad and as a husband. I'm not, I'm not fearful of losing all of that. The stability of the covenant and of the biological relationship I have with my children allows me to kind of keep swinging, keep progressing, keep journeying. It's grace. And so you have to understand the invitation of the Christian life isn't, hey, follow Jesus, then read your Bible, uh, and then make sure you go to church, and make sure you give money, and make sure you share your faith, as if you, that's what you got to do to please God. Paul says this much more radically. I mean, here's how, oh, I already read that part. Here's, I mean, he describes you as, I was like, did I read that? Yes. Blessed, and chosen, and loved, and adopted, so... 
Put off anything that is no longer you. Anything that doesn't feed that new identity. Get rid of it. And engage in the behaviors and with the people that feed the new identity you have. That's the invitation. I think the royal wedding thing was dumb. Can I throw that out there? Now, now for those of you that loved it and stayed up late, we're, we're a safe place to make those kind of mistakes. We're, it's okay. I, I didn't quite see what the big deal was. However, my wife and even my children were captivated by watching unknown strangers exit cars and having their fashion choices dissected. Kate Middleton was a commoner, correct? Now she is a duchess, correct? Do you think, do you think maybe the invitation to her is to become who she already is? Do you think there's a whole new pattern of ways of living and acting and thinking that have to be true of her now as opposed to what was true of her then? You think that's the case? So I want you to understand, this is true even in earthly terms, how much more so when Paul will spend three chapters of an entire letter just saying, here's who you are, here's who you are, here's who you are. This isn't about self-help. This isn't about self-esteem. This isn't pop psychology. All those things are designed to be focused on you. This is about how great God is, not how great we are. And it's to God's glory he takes clueless people like us and can actually do something with them. Are you tracking with me? So we're going to spend lots of time talking about who we are and then invite ourselves to live up to it. So go to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at one verse this morning. And then we'll look at other verses other places. Because we can. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Let's talk about who he says we are. Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's... Some Bibles will have saints. Some Bibles will have God's holy people. The word is hagioi, if you were dying to know, in Greek. And the word literally means the power washed, the set apart, the cleansed, the purified, those that have been marked off by God for his purposes. That's how he introduces. That's what he calls them. Now, do you think they looked a lot different than us? Do you think they acted a lot differently than us to earn such a title? Or do you think maybe they were just like us? Hmm, you remain unconvinced. Flip over to Philippians. And then we'll go to Colossians. They're all in order, by the way. General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I learned that in seminary. It's like $15,000 worth of learning that. Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's Holy people, saints. It's almost like he says the same thing over and over. Go to Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 1. Just flip the page. Guess what he's going to say here? I, I bet you know. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to Timothy, our brother, to God's saints, holy people. So evidently, it wasn't just the people in Ephesus. Evidently, it's all believers in Christ everywhere. Now, look at the people next to you. Do they look like saints? If you know them, you know they are not. 
right? The Catholic Church is a very, very distinct definition of saint. You've got to do like three miracles and you've got to be dead. Paul evidently was a bit looser on the definition of sainthood because he takes these groups, maybe 10, 20, 30 people in house churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and he refers to them as saints. In fact, nowhere in the Bible are followers of Christ described as sinners. Not once. Do we still sin? Oh, yes. So is God just pretending that we don't anymore? Or is there something more profound going on? Go to Colossians 3. If this doesn't properly blow your mind, I am not sure what to do. This to me uh, is the clearest articulation of how unclear it is (laughs) to be in Christ. Because listen to what Paul says. Christ, oh, excuse me, since then, excuse me, verse 1, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now here's the description of you. Are you ready? For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Now, I don't know about you. That, so think about that. Your past, for you died. Your present, you're now hidden with Christ in God. Your future, when Christ returns, you'll appear, appear with him in glory. Your past, your present, and your future have been swallowed up in such a way that the Bible will speak of you disappearing into Jesus who disappears into God. I have the foggiest idea what that means. Except to say, you no longer have biblical justification for referring to yourself as a sinner if you are in Christ. Do we sin? Utterly. Absolutely. And yet, because of his work, that is no longer the primary way we're to to define ourselves. Now think about that. How many of us are driven by things that have happened in our past? Painful things. Somebody did this to me, and now I internalize that, and that's my identity. Or somebody said something to me when I was younger, and I've been trying to prove them wrong ever since. How many of us, when we come to God things and church things, we feel like we almost have to apologize when we we walk in the door because of just how screwed up we've been recently? How many times and people do you know where we just want to beg God for forgiveness? And yet the scriptures have already said, past, present, future, you have it already. I mean, think about how radical the implications are that your life is now hidden with Christ in God. See, this has nothing to do with how great we are, nothing to do with us feeling better about ourselves. You have to understand, this isn't just self-esteem. This is God-esteem. This is us recognizing that far beyond a ticket to heaven, Jesus of Nazareth has now incorporated his life into our life and our life into his life so that literally... We've disappeared in him. 
Now, there is a concept that us Westerners don't really understand. It's called corporate solidarity. It's the idea that a whole tribe of people can be identified by just one person. Osama bin Laden is a great example, right? He stood for everything that whole group of people was and represented, right? In America, we're just a nation of individuals who, out of collective self-interest, decide to pursue a certain direction. But in Eastern thinking, you're identified by kind of the head of your tribe. So David and Goliath in the Old Testament was actually a war of gods and nations. It wasn't just two people. Now, Paul will speak. Now, stick with me. Paul will speak of people as either in Adam or in Christ. In Adam means everything that was true of fallen Adam is true of us. In Christ, and here's the point, means that everything that is true of the risen Jesus is true of us too. So that how, could, how else could Paul say we've been raised with Christ? Look around. Do you look raised with Christ? No. We're saints. Do we look like saints? No. Because it has nothing to do with how well we're doing. It has everything to do with the fact that we've been hidden in him. So literally, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, he sees us. That's the theological teaching of the New Testament. And then the invitation is put off anything that does not and is not congruent with being a saint. And put on anything that feeds that new identity. So why do we do the Bible reading? Is it because we're good Christians? No! I don't know about you. I find my identity in a thousand other places. I have an online identity. I have an ethnic identity. I have a political identity. I have a socioeconomic identity. I have a sports identity. I'm an alumni of a school, right? I mean, I, I have all of this stuff that it supposedly identifies me and puts me into groups and special interests, like labels. And then there are those that leave early. And it's just, it's just so sad because really, I know. See, if you just leave them at home, you, can, you don't have to leave. The teaching of the New Testament is simply this. Every other place that you could find identity has been subsumed in the simple moniker in Christ. Most important thing about you. End of story. And the fact is most of us don't have the foggiest idea how that makes any practical application to our real life. That's why we're spending between now and August, just to immerse ourselves in this. Because we really, it's like, okay, so I'm a saint. Don't feel like a saint, don't look like a saint. What, what's that matter? I'll tell you why it matters. The vast majority of us live our lives in reactions to pain and to things that have happened to us or things we don't want to have happened. I'm telling you that God takes the verdict of your whole life that you will receive at the end of it and that verdict actually compels us forward into life instead of being pushed or driven by the junk in our past. That's why that matters. It matters because you can come in here and not have to lead with apology. It matters because you can worship 
as somebody who belongs. It matters because the stability of God's covenant to you allows for your imperfection. And then your corresponding honesty about your imperfection. It matters because until you understand how desperately wicked we all are, we will never appreciate his grace. And until you understand his grace, we will not know what it means to be compelled by his love to love other people. Until you begin to see yourself, not in virtue of your own goodness, but in virtue of his goodness towards us, that you actually are looked at as holy and there is no condemnation at all ever and guilt and shame and fear only have power that you give them. Until you come to believe that, many of us are just paralyzed and crippled into simple moralism. I do things and that Jesus is pleased. The invitation is far deeper than that. Would you agree? So, would you stand up with me? Some of you are looking a little drowsy. You know who you are. Right there. A guy just pointed to the girl next to him. Sometimes you need to throw your sweetie under the bus. Sometimes you just need to. All right, would you close your eyes? Now, If you don't get all of this or feel all of this, that is just as it should be. This is a different way of thinking. Uh, And and we just want to prepare ourselves for the journey we're going to take together. All of this stuff will build now on this foundation. So I just want to ask you a few questions. If you would, before God, and you don't have to be all spiritual to do this. Would you simply start asking uh, God these sorts of questions? Close your eyes and just say, okay, God. What are the identities that I've assumed that aren't of you? Ask him to show you and bring them to mind. What are the painful things that have happened in your past? that have driven you to, the, to those identities? Bring those things, those identities, to the God who says, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What would it mean to have those things swallowed up in his love, in his death, in his sacrifice? And in Christ, would you begin to grab hold of the identity of saint this morning? What would it mean for you to begin to see that Jesus has made you a holy person? What would you take off and what would you put on?
you came to see yourself that way. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariners Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.